So we're going to look today at Psalm 32, which talks about guilt and confession and forgiveness and the experience of forgiveness in particular. So that's uh, Psalm 132. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord. And be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. One thing that often puts people off Christianity nowadays is that it contains so much about guilt, about repentance, and about sin. And for a lot of people, the mention of guilt or repentance or sin calls up those images of a doer, old kind of religion, dressed all in black, never happy, and hoping that nobody else anywhere is ever happy either. It seems often like the very opposite of our modern freedom to be ourselves. And the one thing that the modern world thinks most of all that we mustn't do with guilt is ever wallow in it or stir it up because of the corrosive effect it has on self-esteem, on happiness, on self-fulfillment. So in the modern world, there's often the idea that essentially that talk about guilt or repentance or sin is a kind of psychological self-harm. It's something dark, something unhealthy, and that it's much better to sing, as people so often want to at their funerals now, I did it my way, or with Elsa from Frozen. Uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And I think many of us know that there are churches where guilt has been made almost into a weapon or a terrible burden. And there is a danger, of course, in feeling false guilt, felt guilt for something that you're, that you're not actually responsible for. But of course, churches where guilt is made a weapon have understood it and its place in the scriptures just as little as those who never talk about it. Christians who have been Christians for any real length of time can say honestly that facing up to guilt and sin, admitting it, saying sorry for it, turning our back on it, in other words, repenting, um, is exactly how we discover freedom and new joy. It's like a spiritual detox, in a way. Makes you feel cleanness and freshness and vitality again. 
or uh, as at least one person listening at the moment can say, you know, it's like a dose of spiritual antibiotics. It can be a little rough while you take them sometimes, but it's good to get the germs out of your system all the same, as Graham will attest, I think. And I've had the privilege of watching many, many people become Christians, and, and very often you do see that. You see people who are discouraged and weary through this exact truth become joyful and content. Heavy hearts become full of freedom and hope, even in, in bad circumstances, discovering joy through God dealing with sins. It's often one of the clearest signs of someone becoming a Christian, really, isn't it? There, there isn't necessarily a moment that we can all point to when we became Christians. But nonetheless, there is a new freedom, a new lightness that you feel when God has dealt with your sin. So today's reading is a, a psalm, an ancient prayer, a song, and it's a personal story as well. You'll have seen that as we read. It's a story of King David, uh, who was someone who himself discovered real freedom as he confessed his sins to God. And it's more than a personal story because it's a personal story written as an invitation to you and me to experience the same joy and freedom. Now, if we look at verses 1 and 2, you'll see they both start the same way. Blessed. Blessed is he. Blessed is the man. Um, we, we'll have, we've talked about this with, with other passages as well. The word blessed in the Bible isn't just some vague word for, I hope God will be nice to me. It's the real contentment and happiness from knowing that deep down things are good. Things are okay. Not just because you had a good day this morning, got out of the right side of bed and watched something nice on TV, but the kind of real happiness that comes from knowing things are okay, things are good. In other words, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy, joyful. This is an invitation to joy. We're going to look at it in three parts. Firstly, verses 3 to 4 shows the weight of guilt. Verse 5 shows us the way to freedom. And verses 6 to 11 show us the joy that we have in life with God once we've experienced that freedom. So firstly, 3 and 4, the weight of guilt. The Bible does agree with modern psychology that carrying a weight of guilt is deeply destructive and painful. That it can cause not even just psychological but even physical suffering and uh, illness. And that, that was David's experience. Verse 3 tells us that he kept silent. In other words, he was not admitting what was going on in his life. He wasn't confessing. He was repressing his sin. We don't even know if he was admitting it to himself. And he found himself groaning. It says, all day long, his strength was... Verse 4. I, I imagine that after a long winter, most of us can't really remember what heat that's so strong that it saps your strength is like. You know, it's warmer today, but it's not really like that. But maybe you've been on a holiday in Spain or Italy or Greece, and you can remember that heavy, scorching heat that makes your body just feel leaden. You're longing for water or ice cream and hopping from shadow to shadow as you walk along the street. That's how his guilt felt for him. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And many of us can relate to that. We might not feel it often, but sometimes we've done something that we've really regretted. We've let someone down to us, down, someone close to us, or said something really hurtful we shouldn't have done. 
Or lazy carelessness has made us just make some stupid mistake that's hurt someone we love, cost them time or money or effort. And afterwards, at least until we've sorted it out, we feel deeply uneasy, just not able to rest properly, not able to let it go. If it's particularly bad, we might even have lain awake at night thinking about it. In a world where we're encouraged never to feel guilt, or encouraged to shove it down and repress it, essentially, We've even had that feeling without knowing where it's coming from. Just that leaden feeling of something's not right, even though I don't know what. That might be the case here. You know, it doesn't say he felt guilty. He doesn't say, oh, I was thinking all day long about how I shouldn't have done that thing that I did. It just tells us that he felt bad. And that's quite common. I think of a man I saw become a Christian about two years ago now, he was in his 30s, someone full of anger with other people who had done things to him. And understandably, they'd done some unpleasant things to him. But he really didn't see anything wrong that he'd done himself. He, he, he blamed others, he saw himself as a victim. And being with him, you could feel the deep unease, the worry, the joylessness almost radiating off him. I, I don't know if you've met someone like that recently. But when he became a Christian, he realized and came to terms with the things he'd done wrong. Now, nothing changed about what other people had done to him, but he was able to confess and forgive the things he'd done wrong. And just the transformation overnight was remarkable. He realized that the subconscious awareness of what he'd been doing had been tormenting him all along. And he was an extreme case, and watching him grow from glum and grumpy to cheerful and blithe and content was remarkable. But many of us might have had a more subtle case of that, the feeling of wrongness deep in our bones, where we just realize we, we, we haven't been able to live up to even the self-image we have of ourselves, and we've let down those we love. And in David's experience, sometimes it's the struggles that you deal with that wake you up to that reality. Day and night, he says, your hand was heavy upon me. In other words, God used his struggles to help him to realize these things. Normally, you know, in the Bible, you know, if we talked about having feeling God's hand on you, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? It would be a positive thing. But here, it's more like a policeman putting his hand on your shoulder when he catches you doing something you shouldn't. Or your mother when she finds out what you've been up to coming behind and putting a hand on your shoulder. And some of us have experienced just that, haven't we? We've had illness or discouragement that helps us look back and reevaluate the way we've been behaving to help us see where we've been going wrong. C.S. Lewis very famously put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that was, that was the experience here. So David tells us that trying to hide and repress his guilt led to nothing but misery. That's the simple message of this first part. But he said there is a better way that he found. Verse 5, the way to freedom. It's very simple. Instead of denying and repressing, he confessed his guilt to God. I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He looked back at what he'd done wrong. He took it to God, his maker and his Lord, to the one who let down more thoroughly than anyone else. 
and he confessed it. He spoke it out. He admitted what he'd done. And moreover, this was quite a thorough confession. Um, you know the temptation when you apologise is always to minimise what you've done, isn't it? It's always to say um, that you made a mistake, not that you've done something wrong. Or to say, it was a misunderstanding. Oh, I, I was being perfectly sensible, but you misunderstood what I was saying, and I'm sorry your feelings were hurt as a result of what I said. Or, if we're going to admit it, we admit some small aspect. David gives us the example of doing the exact opposite. Here he is being thorough. He's using these different words to describe what he did. Sin, iniquity, transgressions, guilt. You know, the word translated sin there at the start of verse 5 means failing to meet a standard. You know, not living up to what's expected of us. Letting people down in the way we behave. He, he, he's honest about that. I didn't measure up the way I should have done. I acknowledge my sin to you. And then he says, I did not cover up my iniquity. Iniquity, not a word we use much nowadays, but it's, it's the wrong that you deserve to pay for having done. The, you, you, know, you deserve some just desserts. You're, you're full of guiltiness as a result. He says, look, I know I deserve to pay the price for what I've done. I've really done something wrong. And then he says, I will confess my transgressions. Transgressions is, is rebellions. It's going against the rules. It's the insolent kid who swears at the teacher. Or it's when we look at God's laws and say, well, yeah, some of those are fine, but this one, I don't care. It doesn't apply to me. And he comes and he confesses all of that and he says, because of that, I have guilt. Confesses the different ways he's gone, gone wrong. The different ways he's let God down. He's acted arrogantly like the rules didn't apply to him. And he does deserve to pay. But then he says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now this is the turning point of the whole psalm, but it's very short, very simple. You forgave. That was it. When he came, he admitted what he'd done. God forgave him and took away all that guilt, just like that in a moment. Now he doesn't go into how or why God forgives there, does he? Um, we know we're looking forward to Easter. We know exactly how it happened. We know that a long time after David, Isaiah would say that Jesus took up all our infirmities and carried our sorrows, how he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The punishment, the guilt, is lifted off us and put on Jesus' shoulders instead. And uh, the psalm we're looking at, Psalm 32, is quoted in Romans 4, which quotes the, the, the first verses of this psalm and, and says that it lays out a whole argument showing that all through history this has been God's way, whether it's David or Isaiah or us, that Christ has carried the punishment that we deserve. This has always been the way that God takes the punishment his people deserve so that they can have a way forward into freedom and forgiveness and peace. And therefore it is just such an encouragement to us to face up to the reality of our sin. Because when we do, we come to him we, and he forgives it. And you know, if you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you have come to face to face with your sin like that, are you still living with niggling guilts and worries? You know, a lot of us are. Or feelings of inadequacy. Because... 
Jesus forgives completely and thoroughly when we come and confess these things. Perhaps we feel a special guilt because we can't apologize to the people involved in something. Maybe we don't know them anymore. Maybe they've died. But God says, if you come to me, you can have real forgiveness. You know, we often, so often, just try to beat ourselves up and resolve to try harder. Not trying a bit harder is welcome, but trying to beat yourself up isn't going to help. Come to him. Come to him and admit it. Pour out your heart. Admit in every way, everything you've done wrong, everything you regret, everything you don't measure up to, every rule you've broken, those things where you don't deserve anything good, and he will do justice. He will forgive you. And that's the testimony of the whole Bible. 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. In other words, he's faithful to his promises. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that is a promise to you. It's certainly my experience. Nothing has helped me feel real peace more than coming morning by morning and admitting to God my sins of that day or the day before and remembering his promise to forgive. And when I don't feel very forgiven or I still feel guilty, trying to remind myself of that promise, that it is a promise, that it's done, that whether I feel guilty or not isn't the question. Jesus has dealt with it. There is nothing left to feel guilty about anymore. I have a clean slate. And however we do it, that is something all of us should be doing regularly, coming to God to say sorry, because that is when we receive peace. And so this is a real turning point for this psalm. It's a psalm of difficulty and struggle and agony in the first part. But in the second, six to ten, which we'll have to skate over a little, turns to the joyful life with God. It is a picture of joyful life, and it's an invitation to that joyful life. Because David here has had all his guilt lifted from his shoulders, and when it's lifted, he discovers not just peace because he doesn't feel guilty. More importantly, he experiences a new realization of intimacy with the God who loves him. And that's why he calls us to experience the same thing. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Come, do what I did. Don't stay away from God. Come to him and admit your guilt. And the result is that God will care for you. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. God will protect his people from the darkest evils. He will be, it says, a hiding place from danger. You are my hiding place. He will surround me with songs of deliverance as we join God's people and praising him with songs of forgiveness. We can rejoice together. And then in 8 to 9, we see that God intimately instructs and guides a forgiven person. I will instruct you. See how it's turned from David speaking to God himself. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Or as a more, slightly more recent translation has it, has his loving eye on you. Like a parent teaching their child. And so he says, be like a wise child, not like the horse or the mule who have no understanding. You know, needing to be controlled by bit and bridle. Don't Make sure you don't live in a way that needs the sharp tug of the reins or the sting of pain to turn you back to realize where you're going wrong. Don't let things get as bad as David did in the first half of the psalm. Listen to God's word. Just come 
Obey, and then when you fail to obey, which you will, come and say sorry. Confess it all, and start again with a clean slate. We're to know, David says, that the woes of the wicked are many. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Show your trust in him by confessing your sins. And then you will experience his unbreaking and unfailing love. It will surround you always. Now the psalm ends almost where it began, with joy. We started, remember, with blessed is, or happy is, depending on how we want to explain it. But the end isn't just a repeat of that. He changes it a little. Now it's an invitation. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Everyone who has had their sin dealt with by God, come and rejoice together. Because if you are a Christian, this ex he describes your experience. You are clean. Maybe you don't feel it fully, but you are. God has forgiven you. And if you've done something wrong, if you've confessed it before God and tried to put it right, then it's gone, it's done, it's dealt with. There is no more guilt to for you. And if you still feel guilt, it's false guilt. And you can tell it rather rudely to get lost. And then you can be at peace. And if you're not a Christian, if you come to God, but never confessed your sins, or not come to him at all, whether you feel your guilt right now or not, you do need to be aware that it's there, and that someday you will have to reckon with it. Far too often, I've had discussions over the years with people who have left that very late. People who, in old age, struggling to get out of the house, just spent their whole time looking back, filled with regrets and weighed down by the burden of all the mistakes and wrongs they've done over the years, and sit at home thinking of the countless ways they didn't measure up, even to their own standards, let alone to God's. But we don't need to be like that. We don't need to do that. We can know clean consciences, even if our lives are full of mistakes. You know, Christianity may look like, on the surface, a call to wallow in guilt, but it's the opposite. It's a call to face up to it. It's a call to be genuinely and radically honest about it, so that it's done and dealt with, so that then we can move on to freedom. Move on to something better, move on to joy, move on to relationship with God, move on to life and service and love of others. This guilt cuts us off from the joy of true relationship with God, but once we've dealt with it, we experience that relationship and that love and that joy in a far deeper way than we ever could before. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just understand this in our heads, but that we would know it in our hearts, that this would not just be David's story, but that it would be ours, that we would be able to say honestly and truly that you have lifted all guilt from our shoulders, that you have granted us that freedom and peace inside from it, and more than that, that you've called us beyond that guilt 
to the joy of relationship with you. And not just to relationship, but an awareness of that. Awareness of your loving care looking over us. Grant us that, we pray. Give us the awareness of the good God with us, caring for us. The God who takes away our sins, the God who sent his son to die for us so that we could have this.